This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today's episode, we are getting back into our reading of the book, The Tao of Fully Feeling. And today we're going to be talking about chapters five and chapter six. And then I'm also hoping to record and release an episode later this week on chapter six and chapter seven, which almost takes us to the end of the book. So chapter five, we're just going to jump right in. So chapter five talks about the four essential processes of grieving. And I love how he breaks this down. I think often we talk about grief in maybe vague ways. I think most of us, when we talk about grief, we have an idea of what we're talking about. But I I love how the author here breaks it down. He starts out quoting Scott Peck in the book, The Road Less Traveled. And he says, when we avoid the legitimate suffering that results from dealing with problems, We also avoid the growth that problems demand of us. Let us teach our children the necessity for suffering and the value thereof. He says, many people tend to see grieving as the singular process of crying about loss or death. I think that's true. I think that's how most people think of grieving. He says, for grieving to be fully effective, however, it must also include the process of angering, verbal ventilation, and feeling. Makes sense, right? So in this chapter, he describes healthy methods for actively and passively releasing unresolved childhood pain. He says the active resolution of emotional hurt comes from crying, angering, and talking about it. Passive resolution comes from simply focusing on and feeling the old hurts that are stored in our bodies. So I did a a podcast episode called probably about a year ago or Sometime last year, or maybe it was in 2020, those years, 2020 and 2021 are kind of a blur to me. They, they seem like just one really long year. But I did a podcast talking about crying, and he talks about it as well. And some of the information that I gained and shared in that podcast episode is also shared in his section on crying. He says, crying is the healing release of pain through tears. Now, sometimes we think of tears as just part of what comes with crying, but we also know, and research is showing us, that that tears have purpose. He says, crying carries the energy of pain out of the body through physical motions, sounds, and tears of weeping. He says, crying emotes our pain out into the true sense of the Latin derivative, emovere, which means to move out. Now, Dr. William H. Fry, who's a biochemist and director of the Dry Eye and Tear Research Center in St. Paul, Minnesota, said that he thinks people feel better after crying because they may be removing in their tears chemicals that build up during emotional stress. His belief is based on the fact that scientists have known since around 1957 that emotional tears are chemically different than those that are caused by eye irritations which I think is very interesting Um, as somebody who deals with dry eyes. And I've always, you know, my eyes have been sensitive. If I laugh, I tend to cry. 
if it's cold and kind of a breeze, my eyes will water. There's a lot of different reasons my eyes water. But I also, for many, many years of my life, was shut down and would not actually cry. So that's kind of interesting to me that they know that there's a difference between those types of tears. He goes on to say that real self-compassion is very rare in our culture and that many of us have been brainwashed into believing that it's bad and self-indulgent to feel sorry for ourselves, which is what we're doing, right? When we're crying for ourselves, we're holding this sorrow for ourselves. We're feeling sorry for ourselves. And we've been told that that's selfish or that that's just not okay to do those things. You know, maybe we're told things like, I'll give you something to cry about, right? That, that was something that, you know, my dad said, like, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Kind of overriding the fact that maybe there was something to cry about and that's maybe what the tears were about. You know, other times people minimize that or try to minimize the pain that we're experiencing as kids telling us, like, life is not easy. So just, you know, have to get on with it, right? Just kind of deal with it. He says when we're continually punished for crying, we are eventually going to learn to reflexively repress sadness before it can actually well up as tears. And we can do this by holding our breath, tightening our belly, our chest, our throat, and our face. If you've ever like physically or intentionally held back tears, you know what that process is in your body. We hold our breath. Maybe we dig our fingernails into our skin. We can tighten our belly, our chest, our throat, our face. And this can stop the natural motion of grief from rising up through the body into our awareness where then it can be released through crying. Now, some people will say that they hate crying because it actually brings them more pain than it does relief. And he says this is typically because they're physically contracting against their sadness as it's being released. So he says when our tears have to force their way through our constricted bodies, crying becomes unnecessarily painful. He says, I've seen a number of adult children so heavily traumatized for crying in the past that they gagged, choked, or looked as if they were strangling when their sadness finally rose into their throats. He says, such strangling adds pain to crying that has little to do with the actual act of crying. That is all of those layers or maybe those statements that we've placed on top of ourselves that that sorrow has to work through in order to actually make its way out and be released. He says, you know, this pain is avoidable. We don't have to constrict against that process. And when we can learn to relax all the muscles that we formally contracted in order to hold in our tears, crying becomes a painless and profoundly relieving experience. He says, when we first begin to completely relax into crying, our bodies sometimes shudder and tremble. This is the body's way of letting go of years of chronic holding. But oftentimes this can also be frightening and we'll reverse that process and go back into contracting it or stopping that from happening instead of allowing ourselves to surrender to the trembling, even though it makes us uncomfortable, and allow ourselves to release those deep levels of pain. He also talks about how many survivors of childhood trauma also have difficulty letting sound come with their tears. He says often this is because kids had to cry silently if they were going to be able to cry at all. And so in order to avoid being noticed by their parents or shamed or criticized by their parents for crying, 
they just made it silent and didn't make sound. He said, the most profound relief of crying, we know though, comes from letting the natural sounds of weeping come up from as deep a place in the body as possible. He says, the Irish call this keening. So he says, when I cry and let myself sob or wail, it feels to me as if my voice as well as my tears are carrying the hurt out of my body. Sometimes you'll see that in other cultures if maybe there's been a terrorist activity or a war or something like that, um, a bombing, you see kind of that wailing happen, which is really uh, not normal in Western culture here in the United States. That is not what we would do. And so that can feel really uncomfortable when we see other cultures or other people doing that as a way of grieving and crying and allowing that pain to release, that actually that can be a really profound way of crying that actually brings a deep level of relief. He also talks just about this belief that we're often given, whether it's by our family of origin or maybe by our religion or by our culture or friends or peers or wherever we pick up messages, right? That it's wrong to feel sorry for ourselves. Just like, you know, we've talked about in previous episodes where he talked about how we were told that it's not okay to blame. You just have to accept it and move on, right? And stop stop blaming other people for what happened. And he's saying, actually, no, blaming is an important part of this process of healing. He's also saying we all occasionally need to feel sorry for ourselves as well. And he says that shedding tears for the self is one of the most potently healing experiences for recovery. He says progress in recovery is usually extremely limited until there are genuine experiences of self-pity. Now he says self-pity doesn't have to be an all or none experience. And maybe we've all met people who make self-pity look bad by always feeling bad for themselves or always making themselves out to be a victim. He said most people actually go to the other extreme and tumble into self-loathing if we feel a moment of sorrow for ourselves and we have to be strong and buck up and you know put our head down and just muddle through it. He says there's actually nothing in the world more soothing than a good unabashed cry about our troubles. And that self-compassion is one of the most beautiful and restorative emotional experiences that's available to us. And so I, I think, again, just looking at that and seeing what he's saying there, that, I, you know, I talk to clients all the time about the need for self-compassion. Can you have empathy for yourself? Can you hold compassion for yourself instead of this self self-loathing or self-hatred? And what he's saying there is that if we can't allow ourselves to feel sorry for ourselves, for the experiences that we have gone through, we actually can't have compassion, right? That feeling sorry for ourselves and reclaiming this restorative emotional process of holding self-compassion, those two things are linked. And so I, I think when we have a culture that is telling us it's not okay to feel sorry for yourself, we also have a culture that is saying, do not have self-compassion, which if we can't have self-compassion, we're really going to be disconnected from this self, which I think is so pivotal for our emotional intelligence and for our relationship intelligence and all of these things that we need in our lives to make our world warm and meaningful and beautiful. 
those things are getting cut off just because of other messaging we get from very young ages. Often we're praised for being compassionate for other people, but we can't be compassionate for ourselves. And often this extends to compassion for our parents when we haven't really walked through our own experiences and held that compassion and sorrow for what happened to us and our own story. He talks about these two forms that kind of get, uh, these two terms, I guess, these two, he calls them kind of recovery jargon terms that are becoming trendy and popular, catastrophizing and drasticizing. So catastrophizing looks at like when we're catastrophizing, we're looking at the world and all is lost, right? It's doom and gloom. Everything is going to be bad. It's always going to be worst case scenario. And that's kind of how we're looking at the world. In drasticizing, you know, we view all aspects of our life or as we view all aspects of ourselves as hopeless or awful. And so he talks about how crying can heal that tendency to catastrophize and drasticize. You know, he says often we can get caught up into phobias, fear of things, fear of getting sick, fear of, right, that can happen with catastrophizing or drasticizing. My life is always going to look this way. I'm never going to get what I need in my life, those types of things. And he says those are actually rooted in the sorrow and this process that we need to go through of grieving in order to allow ourselves to cry and to to move into anger or verbal ventilation or feeling what happened to us, right? And if we're not doing that, those are two areas we can get stuck in, that catastrophizing and the drasticizing. He says also, you know, crying, as we're crying out the sorrow and we're expending the energy that comes with the sorrow, whether that's verbally ventilating it as well, making the sounds that accompany crying most often, that when we release that, we also tend to find the positives in our life and genuinely find them, not like I'm finding them as a way to counterbalance the negatives and I'm going to look at the positives instead of the negatives. But we can actually genuinely connect with those positive moments, even if it's, you know, I have a lot of good memories as a young child. Like a young child, there was a field behind the back of our house and so many days and so many summers. I mean, really, probably until I was nine or 10 and those houses started to get built and the field was developed into neighborhoods. So many summers and just days spent out in the field exploring and doing whatever we did, you know, as kids, just doing whatever with other neighbor kids and with, you know, myself and just a lot of good memories. And that can genuinely come when we're able to make space for that because we're releasing the pain and the anger and the sorrow that of the feelings we have about what happened to us. And then he talks about angering again, quoting Scott Peck in The Road Less Traveled, he says, anger is an emotion bred into us by countless generations of evolution in order that our survival may be encouraged. It's an interesting way of thinking about anger, right? That it, it's an emotion bred into us that helps us survive and that helps us evolve. He says, without our anger, we would indeed be continually stepped on until we were totally squashed and exterminated. Theodore Rubin in Compassion and Self-Hate says, Anger is probably the most maligned of all human emotions. 
It is repressed more than any other emotion. Its repression and inevitable emergence produces anxiety. I believe more than any other psychological mechanism we engage in. This in turn makes for a host of symptoms, all of which are forms of rage at oneself or self-hate. Despite cultural pressure and propaganda to the contrary, we human beings who are healthy enough to feel anything must generate anger many, many times in our life. So he says, angering is the gerund form of the verb anger. He says, I use this term to describe the process of actively repressing anger in safe and healthy ways. But he says, angering is as essential to effective grieving as crying is, right? We often think of grieving as that crying process. And he's saying, actually, anger is just as important to grieving as crying is which is not typically how we think of anger, right? Or how we think of grieving. We don't think of anger and grieving. Although if we think of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief, anger is a stage in there. You know, and, and I think we know by now she has had said enough times that she did not mean for these stages of grief to be kind of laid out linear, like we go through one and then another and then another, or that we move through them consecutively, right? And instead, it's much more of a messy process. And so anger, in that way, is part of grieving. And it's not like this step right after denial that we get angry about it, and then we move into the other parts. But I think often we go through anger, bargaining, sorrow, back to anger, back to sorrow, So he says, angering allows the recovery to release the part of childhood pain that is an accumulation of unexpressed hostile feelings about parental injustice. Angering allows the energy of pain to be emoted or to be moved out of the body through the sounds and bodily motions of expressing anger. He says, many of us arrive in adulthood unconscious of the simmering furnaces of anger that lie buried inside of us. Denied a direct and full release, this stored anger often smolders just below awareness, causing us to chronically stew in resentfulness, cynicism, and self-hatred. It periodically flares out of some of us in hostile words and actions, and many survivors don't believe they have repressed anger, even when they have a molten core. Alice Miller elaborates in her book on how that volcano can become dormant. She writes, If the patient or client had been able as a child to express his disappointment with his mother, to experience his rage and anger, he could have stayed alive. But that would have led to the loss of his mother's love, and that, for a child, is the same as death. So he killed his anger, and with it, a part of himself. You know, having had four kids myself, and, you know, they're all to young adulthood, as I've said before, I mean, there were times when they were angry at me, and we had to work through that, and I tried to allow them that anger. Sometimes I was angry at them, actually, if I'm honest, right? Sometimes I was angry at them. And sometimes they hurt my feelings and I hurt their feelings. And relationships can be a messy process, even when we love our children the way that we think we're supposed to be loving our children. It can also be surprising that sometimes we're hurt by them or we're angry at them or that they are angry at us. And can we hold that love through that process of them being able to express anger or disappointment or hurt in our actions, knowing that we're not perfect. 
Now he talks about how violence is a key reason why so many of us find it difficult to welcome anger back into our lives because so often anger is mis-expressed as violence or abuse, things that make us afraid, shrink back, that type of stuff. And because it's ugly, right? That we, we resist allowing ourselves to be angry. And sometimes I have to tell clients, like when I'm asking you to reclaim your right as a human being to feel anger, I'm not asking you to be abusive. Like that, that didn't have to happen. And so often they conflate that and think that because their parents were angry and the abuse followed, that that's going to happen, that that's a package deal. And that if they get angry, they then will be abusive as well. And it's not a package deal, right? Which also opens us up to another layer of pain, which is they didn't have to do that, right? They did, but it wasn't inevitable. They didn't have to go the route of abuse, even though maybe our parents didn't know that or couldn't know that for whatever reason. He also talks about how Another way that we become alienated from our anger is because of the, he calls it the camouflage violence that is so prevalent in the sarcasm and put down of our social patter. He says there's great denial in our culture that words are sometimes deadly weapons. You know, so often I talk to clients, I've had to talk to my kids. You know, sometimes I I have had to talk to myself and just say like, look, words matter. What you say matters. And are we joking at the expense of the self? Are we joking at the expense of other people? And can we see that as also maybe an expression of anger coming out sideways and inappropriately? But that's also violent, right? Maybe not in the way we think of violence in terms of physical violence, but emotionally, and maybe verbally, it's assaultive, which would be violent, right? And so I think we have to be aware of how we use humor, how we banter with each other, how we are playful, because that playfulness actually may carry an edge with it. And that edge protects us, but doesn't necessarily protect other people from us. He also says that most of us are more verbally violent to ourselves than we are to others. When we are feeling that anger rise up in us, usually that that comes maybe later. Maybe we can do that with friends if they know our story and they understand and can have those conversations. That usually means they've done their own work as well. Maybe that's something sometimes I see with couples that I work with that that anger starts from the spouse. The spouse holds anger on behalf of you for what happened or how this family dynamic is. Sometimes you know, those people who are marrying into our family can spot the dysfunction much quicker than we can. And they're less prepared for it. And so it's maybe more obvious or they see it, they haven't normalized it. It hasn't become familiar to them. And so they're able to maybe uh, be angry on our behalf. Sometimes that makes us uncomfortable and that causes a conflict or that is the fight that we have with our spouse and we don't know how to handle their anger on our behalf. And so we get angry at them. But there are techniques for expressing anger that have been shown to be effective and also are not damaging. They're not abusive to self or others. 
and they can express the anger that comes up when we're looking at and doing this work of examining our childhoods. Scott Peck again says, we must possess the capacity to express our anger in different ways. At times, for instance, it is necessary to express it only after much deliberation and self-evaluation. At other times, it is more to our benefit to express it immediately and spontaneously. Sometimes it is best to express it coldly and calmly, at other times, loudly and hotly. And I think there's all of those ways to express it, none of which has to tip into abuse or none of that has to tip into violence. But, you know, if you think about that, the four ways that he expressed it or said that we need to be able to express it, sometimes it's after a lot of thought and evaluation of whether we should say this and what's the cost to me going to be? What's the cost to me if I don't say it? Sometimes it can take months or I've even worked with clients where it takes years before they've deliberated on it long enough and they decide to go ahead and speak to that. At other times, I know for me, um, when I was kind of reclaiming my right to be angry and to sometimes speak my anger, you know, I was given some feedback by some people that I trusted who said, you cut it off. Like we feel it. We feel it start to rise. And you're right. It wasn't a situation where I was angry at them, but they were like, you're right. And then you just shut the whole thing down because it does feel intense and you are building it and you're feeling it. And why do you shut that down? Right. And I had to look at and say, oh yeah, because in my house, if any emotions got too intense, even fun and laughter and joy, right? If, if they got too intense, I lost power over what happened to them. Right. And it could then be picked up by somebody else, usually my mom or dad, and then it got bad. Also, I'd been given feedback, right? As a woman, often, I've said this before, women are told, at least I've been told, I know other women have been told that nobody likes an angry woman. And so try, you know, I could feel that anger coming and it was spontaneously coming and I wanted to speak to it. And I got to the point where I could speak to it quite effectively or articulately and, you know, not screaming or anything like that, but I could express it spontaneously and I could be articulate in that moment if I would connect to it. But that was a that was something I had to learn to trust, to, to connect with my gut and to speak. I would say it's kind of from my heart, but also my gut to the anger that I was feeling. And, you know, sometimes that wasn't appreciated or I was told or, you know, my husband was told that that was not appreciated, even though I kind of appreciated it. You know, so he talks about that we can we can break this repression of our anger or the guilt that we feel about having anger and so then we repress it, that cycle, that we can break that cycle. And there are many safe, non-abusive techniques for releasing anger. You know, usually they range along a continuum of intensity that gradates from thinking, you know, we can think about our anger and have a conversation in our head from that angry place to writing, to actually speaking it out loud verbally, to shouting, to shadow boxing, to pounding on a pillow. And then, you know, it gets up to the point where we're breaking expendable objects. So usually there's some thought put into that. We don't just kind of tear through and then we have regret afterwards because we just destroyed things that we didn't mean to. But 
we're methodical about it and we're strategic about it and we can even get at thrift hand stores cheap objects you know sometimes we also don't want to make a huge mess so putting it in you know I've had clients wrap mugs that they buy at a thrift store and put it in a pillowcase and just smash it right not a lot to pick up afterwards but that feeling of hearing it shatter and break can actually release some of that pent-up repressed anger and can be actually very healthy for us and healing for us Sometimes when I'm working with my clients, so I haven't talked about this, I don't think on the podcast about the training I've been doing last year. I started it last year and I should finish it up this year on lifespan integration. It's a trauma modality. And so as I'm working with clients, you know, we kind of construct a timeline with memory cues. And sometimes as we're going through their timeline, I might say to them, one of the protocols, you know, is to say, you can say things out loud, like you could say no or that's not right, or like you can have a response to this timeline, right? Sometimes I'll tell clients, you can plug your ears, you can shake your head, different things like that, just in response to this timeline that happened to them, usually that's part of their story, but not necessarily the story that they would have chosen. And a lot of times, you know, the first time I kind of say that to a client, most of what I get sometimes is them saying, oh, that's okay, I'm not really a yeller. Okay, well, I mean, you could yell it, but you don't have to yell it. You can just say it, right? You can speak it. You can have a response. And a lot of times it takes some time with their timeline before they're willing to do that. And sometimes I see that actually they just kind of naturally move there several sessions down the road and they actually start having those appropriate responses and even allowing themselves to feel just a little bit of the anger as we're going through their timeline. He talks about how angering unlocks our joy and that when we finally end our lifelong repression of anger, we can feel exuberant relief. He also talks about how angering builds confidence. And he says, many of my clients do not achieve any substantial gains in real world assertiveness until they do anger release work in their therapy. And then he talks about how in his own life, Anger work helped him many times to break through his fear and to take the risks that were essential to his ongoing personal development. And I would agree with that. I think in a way, angering, we've talked about this, I think in the first or second chapter, we talked about how this blame or grieving kind of restores this instinct for self-protection. And I think angering is part of that. Like, you know, I often talk about anger as an emotion says, hey, pay attention, or it's an alert, kind of like a alarm system or something that says, pay attention, proceed with caution, put up your guards, like something's up, right? And again, sometimes it can, you know, like a home alarm system, sometimes it can be triggered falsely, which anger can as well. But oftentimes what we think may be, you know, a false tripping of our anger actually is an emotional flashback. And so I think in that way, when we are able to anger and to feel that and allow ourselves to somehow express that anger and connect with that anger, it restores this instinct for self-protection, which I think also restores this instinct that we have for survival, right? Not just for survival, but like I have this part of me that knows that I deserve to be treated with respect. And when I haven't been, my anger comes on board and says, wait a minute, proceed with caution. 
but often in our own childhood that was kind of extinguished or we had to really dial that down and to the point of underdeveloping that in order to survive. He says, unless we reclaim our healthy anger, we may remain paralyzed by past fears that can no longer hurt us. He says, angering invokes the courage necessary to liberate our full self-expression. And it removes the gag of emotional flashbacks that silence us with the specter of being smashed down for speaking out as in childhood. He says, often this anger, if we're doing this work long enough, we're going to get to the point where this anger that we feel may turn towards some rage that we feel towards our parents. Um, Not that we're actually going to engage in rageful behaviors. But he says, when denial sufficiently crumbles, often survivors commonly split off from an unambivalent, idealized love of their parents into temporary feelings of hate. He says, if we never challenge the absolute loyalty that our parents demanded, sometimes they didn't verbally demand that, but we felt it as a child. We felt the need to protect them, to cover for them, to not speak about what was happening. He says, then we never see how impaired we are by the hypocritical view of ourselves that we inherited from them. And splitting off into anger helps us to both work through our accumulated rage and also protects our unfolding self-expressiveness from our parents' censuring. So then he talks about the next part, which is verbal ventilation. And so, you know, he says verbal ventilation is when language is charged with the feeling. So verbal ventilation is the grieving process of releasing pain by talking or writing about it. And he says it's one of the primary healing processes of most formal psychotherapy. He says we release the pressure of old childhood pain by talking about the thoughts, the feelings, sensations, images, and memories that arise when we contemplate our past in an uncensored manner. He says when we air out our grief by talking about it, verbal ventilation dissipates our anger and evaporates our sadness. This occurs most potently when we allow ourselves to feel our emotions as we're talking and to cry or express anger as we speak. Sometimes it's helpful to have this uh, verbal ventilation with a witness with a safe person, a listener who's non-judgmental and compassionate and understands this process and what's happening for us. And he says, you know, sometimes we do this by ourselves um, and we're talking out loud to ourselves in a car or someplace private. He says partners can do this together. Sometimes friends can hold that space for each other. And oftentimes, you know, as, as clients develop this support system and understand what they need and find people, gravitate towards people who can also do that for them, they eventually outgrow that need for therapy. You know, I have some clients who will say, I don't know that I'm ever going to outgrow the need for therapy. And maybe that's true, right? I'm not trying to rush anybody. But sometimes we find people in our life who can also do that for us and hold that space for us. And then he also says that writing is a powerful tool for verbal ventilation, that we can freely uninhibitedly write about the pain and the feelings that we have about what happened to us. You know, when I was young, I kept a journal and I mean, I can look back at it now. I, I've read my journal. It's been a while since I've read those journals. And it's interesting because I never actually allowed myself to write what was happening because I knew if my mom ever found that journal, I didn't ever really picture my dad finding that journal because he just was not that involved in anything. I don't even know if my dad ever walked into my bedroom, right? But I worried sometimes if my mom found my journal. First of all, I knew she would have read it. I don't know that she didn't find my journal and read it. 
But if I had actually written the truth about what had happened, one of their fights or something I had witnessed or something I had experienced, she would be upset and deny or minimize or rationalize or even make me just remove that page altogether from my journal. And so I would write somewhat cryptically in ways that like I knew what I was saying, but my mom reading it, I thought wouldn't know what I was saying. And so again, that is not the way to verbal ventilate in journaling or in writing, but really to allow yourself to express that and to have kind of the emotions as you're feeling them, maybe the images of what you witnessed or what you saw, and then to be able to write that down can also be a way of expressing and ventilating those emotions. And then he also talks about, you know, cursing. And, you know, for some people, this just wasn't allowed. You know, I grew up in a religion and, you know, I initially parented my kids in a religion where cursing really was not allowed. And especially for women and girls, you were really looked down upon if you, as a female, cursed. And, you know, I was talking with um, some people, well, when I was at the GLI, I talked about that back in October. And, you know, they were kind of saying, oh, yeah, we don't let our kids swear in front of us. And I said, I do, right? And I, I mean, they kind of knew about my journey and my faith and that type of stuff. And so I just said, I think it's one of those, I mean, sometimes I'm like, okay, find a different word, right? And I talk about how my mom, being a teacher, she would often tell us like she was okay with swearing. I don't really know that I heard her swear. And she certainly, I never heard her use the big swears. But she would say, you know, if there's a better word for it, you need to know that word and you need to use that word. You can't just like lazy swear because you can't think of a word and so you insert a cuss word. And so, but sometimes she would say, sometimes the appropriate word is a cuss word, right? But if you overuse cuss words, then how are you going to be able to express what you feel or express the intensity of what you feel, right? Because you just use it for everyday, non-significant issues. And so in theory, I agreed with her, right? That's not how that was practiced. I don't think I ever swore in front of my mom. And when I was meeting my husband, initially we were friends and he would swear and he, you know, felt free to use all the swears. And my mom would kind of talk about that negatively. You know, she would have thought he was a lazy swearer and, you know, he probably was, but I just kind of got that feeling that like in theory, this is her teaching on it, but in practice, she really didn't want any of us to swear. But I think sometimes, you know, those words, sometimes if we reserve them for certain emotional states or a response that isn't typical or isn't common. I mean, sometimes it's typical because there's a lot of things to really be angry about as we're doing this work or as we become aware to the injustices in life. But, you know, if we can reserve them for those types of situations, that can also be a way of actually expressing that. He says, the most powerful healing of the past comes when we cry, rage, and verbally ventilate all at the same time. He says, young children whose emotional self-expression is still unharmed, fully emote, instinctively to rebirth themselves out of such mini deaths as getting hurt or losing something of value. And then he talks about, you know, how feeling, actually allowing ourselves to feel how important that is. And, you know, he has a technique in here. If we're kind of cut off from our feelings or if we're stunted with our feelings and we don't really allow ourselves to be aware of our feelings or fully connect to our feelings or we only express so much of the feeling. He has a technique that he shares in chapter five to enhance feelings, how we can get into a process of enhancing our feelings. But he says, feeling is the process of grieving 
that allows a survivor to work through childhood pain in a passive way. Not necessarily active, right? I'm not destroying things. I'm not writing it out. I can do it in my car, right? He says, feeling is focusing on pain with the intention of relaxing any resistance to it so that it can just pass through and out of the body. He says, feeling is the reversal of the learned survival mechanism of clamping down on the pain and banishing it from our awareness. He says, feeling contrasts with emoting, which is the process of offering pain an active expression and release through crying, angering, or verbally ventilating. He says, feeling and emoting are opposite but equally important processes in grieving. He says, feeling is different from emoting in that it is the process of quietly experiencing an emotion. Feeling is a receptive yin, he says, while emoting is an active yang. And he says, feeling occurs when awareness is fully focused inwardly on an emotional state with the intention of accepting it and just letting it be. He says, in its purest form, feeling is the process of pain, non-thinking, non-interfering attention to the emotional state of the body. When I am releasing my hurt through feeling it, my awareness seems to be a solvent in which my emotional pain is gradually dissolving. He says feeling an emotion can be likened to slowly digesting it. Also not something that we have to actively pursue, right? We don't have to actively do anything for our bodies to digest the food that we eat. But he says when we relax into a feeling, we can gently absorb it into our experience. Very similarly to how we digest food. He says the practice of feeling has taught me that there is absolutely nothing inside myself from which I need to run. There's no thought no energy, feeling, picture, sensation, or memory that I need to shame, hate, or fear. Persistent, passive focusing on any internal phenomena leads to its eventually integration and resolution in consciousness. It's an experience of understanding and accepting all our existential predicaments. He talks about how sometimes our reason, right, our ability to reason can get in the way of grieving. You know, sometimes that's that reasoning that like, well, this doesn't match this or this doesn't make sense with that, that actually that's going to get in the way of us being able to actually grieve and to feel something. And he also talks about how grieving is not a fast fix. It can take some time and it can take some time to fully allow ourselves to relax into and not have kind of a quick reaction and want to push it away, but to really just kind of let ourselves relax into that truth or that memory or that image or that feeling and to be able to kind of just accept that and let it be what it was. And, you know, we've talked before on this podcast about the dark night of the soul. You know, he says that some therapists call the first long immersion in the griefful re-experiencing of childhood pain the dark night of the soul. Another term for it is the abandonment depression. So he says the dark night of the soul is like an extended emotional flashback and recovering survivors who have experienced prolonged abuse or extreme emotional disconnection from their parents. This is anybody who's going to fit that CPTSD definition usually have at least one long encounter with their unresolved childhood abandonment depression. And you know, that childhood abandonment depression is just that feeling of emptiness. Like when our parents were not attentive to us or not attuned or we weren't actively getting what we needed or whether that's a fear of feeling of safety or a feeling of belonging, a feeling of our preciousness, those types of stuff. He says that 
abandonment by our parents will result in that depressed state. And then he talks about, you know, this process of surrendering, or he calls it bottoming out. So he says the most difficult task in navigating the dark night of the soul and in becoming effective grievers in general is fully surrendering to our grief. And I call this surrender bottoming out. He says bottoming out occurs when we finally stop struggling against our painful feelings and we just let them wash over us. And sometimes that takes us to the bottom of that, right? Like sometimes with sex addiction, you know, I'll talk with clients and they'll maybe be talking to me about their sex drive, which he gets into in chapter six. He talks about sex addiction. And they may be talking about this feeling that they have to have sex with their spouse, right? Maybe they're trying to not do it in an acting out unhealthy way, but in a way where they are doing it in a healthy way. But they'll say, I just have this desire to be sexual with my wife, right? And I'll say to them, okay, if that's what's at the top of the barrel, right? Let's say the barrel's full of water. And what you can see at the top is this sexual desire. Can you follow that all the way down to the bottom? And what's at the bottom? Is it actually sexual desire? Is it insecurity? Is it abandonment? Is it loneliness? Is it self-doubt, self-criticism, right? What's underneath that need for sex? Because most of us have messaging that we got or coping mechanisms that we got that fracture our emotions and what we think is sexual desire may actually be another emotion altogether. And so, you know, not that maybe that sexual desire wasn't there, but is that actually what's there all the way through, right? And I think that's similar to what he talks about with bottoming out. You know, he says most of us have to weather many titanic struggles before we learn to gracefully bottom out. And in the beginning, we typically resist our emerging grief with the frenzy of drowning swimmers, often going down more than three times before settling into the depths of our pain. You know, he talks about how it's common. He says many survivors are oblivious to their childhood pain until they reach the age of about 30. And I, I think the last time I saw a stat on this, I was probably, I don't know, eight years ago, where they said the average age of a client entering therapy is about 38. Now, that was expected to get lower, just as the stigma of therapy wears off and the younger generation is more open to coming into therapy. He says that oftentimes it's things that happen in our current life around 30 that awakens us to this unfairness from our past. And, you know, it actually may be present time unfairness. Maybe things that didn't bother us before in our jobs or the relationships all of a sudden suddenly make us acutely uncomfortable. And we start to notice injustices that resemble the mistreatment and neglect of our parents. And this will start to peel back the layer and start to uncover or pull back the curtain, right? And start to help us uncover our childhood grief. You know, there's other things that can precipitate kind of pulling back that curtain and showing us glimpses into the unfinished business from our childhood. You know, it could be the loss, any type of loss, loss of a relationship, loss due to death, you know, even the death of a pet, loss of good health, that type of stuff. Also, it can be success in love, right? Sometimes when we feel genuinely loved for the first time in our lives, all of this past suffering from a lack of love can resurface. And all the tears that we wouldn't let ourselves cry that were connected to our loneliness or our isolation or 
the pain we felt at somehow being defective starts to surface. And he says, you know, in a similar way, the curtain can be pulled back and we can start to grieve spontaneously anytime when we attain any of our heart's desires, right? Because that's so contrary to what we experienced as a kid, you know, often when there's CPTSD or childhood trauma, we were not used to getting our heart's desires and even protected ourselves from knowing what our heart desired. And so he says, you know, the real recovery of any childhood loss reminds us of how impoverished our lives were without it. All the accumulated grief of long years of deprivation naturally appear at such times so that it can be finally released. You know, for me, one of those things as I became a parent and, you know, I was a therapist. I had my master's degree and had started practicing before I was pregnant with any of my kids. So I was actively trying to do everything different that I could think of. But I wasn't prepared for as I was intentionally doing things as a parent that I had studied and that I had learned would be helpful in the development of a child, how much it would bring me into the grief of like, it's not that hard. Now, don't get me wrong. Parenting is hard. I think parenting is really hard, especially when we're, you know, in the midst of some challenge or, you know, that's that saying the days can be long, but the years are short. But there were times where, you know, I could handle one of my kids' emotional outbursts and then throwing a temper tantrum and all of that type of stuff. The both of us got through it and fairly well. We, we weathered it well. I didn't have to get angry or overpowering of them. I didn't have to be abusive. And eventually they calmed down and all was well and they were fine. And sometimes they'd fall asleep and then I'd be like, there we go. Let's just reset that nervous system. And I would think to myself, that wasn't that hard. Maybe it took 20 minutes, maybe it took 30 minutes, but it actually feels so much better than what I experienced or what I witnessed growing up as a child. Now he talks about, you know, that some of us are afraid to start that grieving process because we feel like if we start, we can't stop. And that's not true. That's usually just one of the things we say so that we don't get started. It can feel true. I'm not saying, you know, I don't want to diminish that because it can feel true, but I've never actually seen anybody get so bogged down in their grief that they don't actually surface out the other side, feeling some relief, feeling some clarity, some understanding and some self-compassion. But it does, he says, you know, opening up to grief is a courageous act of faith. And I'm just noticing the time. Most of these episodes are going long because there's just so much to talk about. So I'm going to actually end with chapter five and I'll do another podcast about chapter six. But I wanted to highlight first what he talks about, you know, so I've said this to clients before as, as I'm talking about like emotions and feelings that we can have, you know, often I will, I'll say this to new clinicians that are, that I'm doing supervision with or training with. I'll say this to clients as well. Oftentimes, and he talks about how polarized emoting emotions can be for genders. So, you know, he talks about how men are more likely to be given permission to feel anger and to emote anger, but they're not really given permission to cry or to show that type of sadness and allow the tears to come, right? To feel that sorrow. And so they lose kind of that ability to connect with their sorrow 
and that level of grief. And on the other hand, you know, as I've stated, women are often told not to be angry, right? Women are allowed to cry. I mean, they're criticized for being weak, just like men are being criticized for being angry. Women are criticized for being weak, but they're allowed to let the tears flow, right? They're allowed to feel sadness and sorrow and to actually cry. But as we've talked about in this chapter, grief is more than just one or the other, right? It's not only being angry and verbally ventilating or feeling that anger. And it's not only feeling the sadness and allowing ourselves to connect with the the deep sorrow that's there in the grief. And it's actually both. And then, you know, there are those individuals where it was too confusing or they didn't feel like in their family of origin they could do either. They couldn't feel sad and they couldn't be angry. But oftentimes, part of the recovery work for men is reclaiming and connecting with their ability to feel sorrow and to be able to express that sorrow through tears and not through anger. And likewise, for women, it's their ability to claim and to reconnect with their anger and to be able to express some of their grief by being angry about what has happened to them. So that's going to do it for chapter five. Like I said, I'm going to do a separate episode for chapter six. There's just a lot of good information and I don't want to skim over it because I think so many of the things that he's discussing in each of these chapters is really important to kind of pull apart and break apart to get some better understanding. Because sometimes if you're like me, I might read it in a book or I listen to it. I'm listening to this book and I'm reading this book and I listen to it and I miss it. And then I'm reading it and I'm like, oh my gosh, there it is. Or vice versa, right? And so I think sometimes there's just a lot of dense information in these chapters. And so I don't want to just skim over it because I don't think that does justice to the work that the author has done. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. And don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.